morning. I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and today we get to wrap up a study in the book of James that we've entitled Forward Faith. And on this journey, we've been learning a lot about what it means to live by faith, to trust God in our everyday life in a lot of different practical areas. And um, today we're going to be talking about um, forward faith results and spiritual influence. A couple weeks ago, after our elder retreat, we had... um, several of our elders up here and sharing about what God had done at that gathering. And it's my third time being on that retreat and and watching God just bring together all these men of God who had been prayed up and seeking God's face together and the, the incredible unity and focus that God gave to us. And we walked away this year just believing that the focus for Chapel Point moving forward needs to be that, that we want to be catalysts for spiritual awakening in a dry culture. And there was just such clarity about that. And, and when we shared that with you uh, on that Sunday when, after coming back, it was just affirmed by the body of Christ in such a great way. Catalysts for spiritual awakening in a dry culture. Some uh, years ago, it was 1985 actually, uh, Bert and I uh, took a trip first of many trips where we were going to uh, connect with missionaries and national leaders. This trip took us to Peru, South America. And um, one of the things that I found unusual about Peru, the coastal plain of Peru is one of the driest deserts in the entire world, as dry as the Sahara. And that was a little bit of a surprise because when you think about the coast of California, you think of how the wind currents bring the rains and, and how they're just uh, lush vegetation because the, the clouds can't go over the Sierra Nevada mountains. But in South America, it's just the opposite. And the wind currents are such that it drops all the rain in the Amazon jungle and doesn't get over the Andes. And that, that whole coastal plain is a dry, arid desert. Remember... <laughs> Uh, riding along on the Pan American Highway, and you can see the Pacific Ocean off to your right as we were heading south there, and, and just all the different color sand, and it was actually a beauty to the desert, but it was dry and arid. And you would come up over a rise, and all of a sudden you would see a river valley. The, the waters came from the high Andes two miles high, and all year long it would just flow down into this river valley, and you'd see sugar cane, and you would just see this lush, vegetation. And then you'd go up another rise and you'd be back in the desert again. I think how much like our culture that is, how much like people's lives that is, that are just dry and arid. And how in Jesus Christ we have something that's worth sharing. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 7, verse, beginning at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This particular event was at the Feast of Tabernacles. A feast that commemorated the wandering of the the Jewish nation through the wilderness. On this particular great day, the feast as it's called, 
This was a time when the high priest would go down to the, uh, the pool of Siloam and would take water in a pitcher and would, with great fanfare and a great entourage, would walk up to the Temple Mount and would pour that water out at the base of the altar. And it was to remind them and commemorate how Moses struck the rock and water came out as a river to give water to all the, the Israelites. That, that particular time of the feast, it was at a fever pitch in terms of people's passion for, for this particular event. And it's at that event that Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowd and said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is saying that only he can satisfy the thirst of a soul. But he goes on and he said that who the, whoever believes on him out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus doesn't just satisfy your thirst and mine if we believe in him, but he also gives us an ability to satisfy the thirst of other people. And Jesus goes on and John goes on and explain that what Jesus meant by that is that the Holy Spirit that was going to be given after Jesus was glorified that the Holy Spirit would minister through believers to bring that water to others, that refreshment. My friends, I'm here to tell you that Jesus has been glorified. He was crucified. He did rise from the dead. He did ascend to heaven. And Jesus Christ is the one today who, through the Holy Spirit, ministers to people through you and through me. So it's possible for you and I to be catalysts for spiritual awakening in a dry culture. Possible for us to do that. Uh, by the way, if you uh, remember your chemistry in school, I know some of us have long forgotten everything we learned in chemistry, but one of the things that we learned about was being a catalyst. A catalyst in chemistry is a substance that enables a chemical reaction to proceed at a unusually faster rate or under different conditions. That's what a catalyst is. It actually causes a reaction. Metaphorically, the idea of catalyst means this. It's an agent that provokes or speeds significant change or action. We are to be catalysts of transformation in the lives of other people. Last week we heard stories of transformation. That's really at the core of what we're about as a church. Transform followers of Christ. And God wants to use you and me as catalysts to be able to see God transform other people's lives. And the Holy Spirit has given to you and to me that through us, people can find the satisfaction for their spiritual thirst that's only found in Jesus Christ. Nowhere else, nothing else can satisfy it. So turn with me to the very end of the book of James. Very closing passage. Two weeks ago, Pastor Joel um, left us off at verse 16, halfway through, and so we're going to pick up there. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth brought, bore its fruit. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone bring him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You notice in verse 16 to 18, the the focus is on prayer. Kind of continues the theme that starts at verse 13. And verses 19 to 20 focuses on restoration, kind of picking up on what he has said in verses 15 and 16. So the two main ideas of this passage that we have in front of us today is prayer and restoration. And through prayer and restoration, we are able to be catalysts for spiritual awakening in a dry culture. We can make a difference. James is calling us to that. I want you to notice that um, as he talks about being a catalyst through prayer, this is the third time in the book of James that he's focused on prayer. In James chapter 1, he said, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and doesn't um, abrade us, doesn't confront us. And it'll be given to him, but let him ask in faith. We're told in that passage that coming to God in prayer, we need to believe that God is able to do more than we could ever ask or think. You see, friends, when you and I pray, we don't put our faith in our prayers. We put our faith in the God we're praying to, with whom there's no limit to what he can do at all. Uh, James chapter 4, then, in verses 1 to 3, he focuses our intention on some inhibitors to prayer. He says, first of all, sometimes we have not because we ask not. Let's talk about prayerlessness. Some years ago, there was a commercial for V8 vegetable juice. I don't know if anybody here remembers it, but a guy would do this. I could have had a V8. How anybody remember that? Okay. Yes, thank you. I could have had a V8. I, I've gone through parts of days and just said, I could have prayed. Prayerlessness. How many times do we just go about our day without communing with God, without abiding in Christ, without praying? And James says that's a barrier to prayer. But then he says sometimes we ask amiss. We ask with wrong motivation. And he says those two things, prayerlessness and, and praying with wrong motivation, get in the way of our prayer life. But here in this text, starting with verse 13, he talks about how prayer is to be our response to everything in life. Anyone among you suffering... Those matches, uh, pray. Anyone among you cheerful, like when the sun is shining in West Michigan, sing a psalm. Anybody sick, pray. Call for the elders to pray. And, and he said that the prayer of faith, still emphasizing faith in prayer, will save the one who's sick. The Lord will raise them up. Anybody have sins to confess? We well do. Then we would pray. I want you to just uh, practice something with me. I know you can all do this because you're all here alive, all right? I want you to take a very short breath, just real shallow breath. Now I want you to take a really, really deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Prayer is like that. Prayer is like breathing. And sometimes in our prayer life, it's that one-sentence prayer, just like that. And sometimes it's very deep and coming from deep within our heart. Yesterday, I was swimming laps in the pool at the YMCA, and I, I realized that I hadn't swam for a while because I'd go several laps, and I'd have to stop and breathe about four times before I could continue going. And I realized, okay, Jim, you're not as good in shape as you thought you were. You know, sometimes in our lives, we... We feel that sense of, you know, God, I, 
feel like my prayer life isn't where it ought to be. And James is saying to us that if we're going to be that kind of a catalyst, prayer is absolutely essential to our lives. And at the end of verse 16, he picks this up, and he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. Great power. Great power. This is the word from which we get our word energy. Prayer gives spiritual energy. It gives power to our lives. It enables us. He talks about um, this great power, and it is working. It is, has much force. I like to think of prayer as heart talk. It's my heart communing with the heart of God. That's what it is. God is not interested in you talking in stained glass window voices. God's interested in your heart talking to his heart. What God longs for, and that's what we really long for too. And so he says this fervent prayer, this energizing prayer, has to come from a righteous man. Righteousness has several different meanings within the, the Bible. First of all, we are only made righteous in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes these words about the gospel. God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Friend, do you realize that you have no righteousness in and of yourself? The prophet Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that all our righteousness are like filthy rags, literally the rags of a leper. Filthy rags. That's what we bring. But in Jesus Christ, when we repent of our sin and we trust in him as our Savior, we are actually made righteous. We are declared righteous before God. We have a new standing. We were singing about that this morning. You have a new standing in God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a new standing before God. You are righteous in Jesus. And then there is the practical righteousness of our daily life as we continually conform ourselves to Christ and his character and, and God and his commands, and God continues to change us and to make us righteous. I hope this isn't news to any of you, but there's not a perfect person here. None of us. And we all sin. That's why the Bible talks about part of prayer is confession. And and, and being righteous doesn't mean that you're sinlessly perfect, but it means that you keep short accounts with God and you confess your sins and you keep things short. Bert and I have been married for 45 years. And, And like every couple, we have our times of conflict. The best part of having conflict with Bert is kissing and making up. I've got to tell you, it's the best part. The best part of confession is being embraced by the forgiveness of God and being cleansed. It's the best part. God does that for us. On a righteous man, he then talks about the example of this kind of catalyst prayer. He talks about Elisha, verse 17. Elisha was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and it rained not for three years and six months on the earth. He prays again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. The the Jews, before the time of Christ, looked at Elisha like he was some kind of a supersized saint, that he, he was just this man of God that was used with miracles and He's prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi as the one who's going to come and 
precede the coming of the Messiah. We know that that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so they looked at Elijah as if he was just like superhuman. James here says, no, Elijah was a man like us in our humanity. If you don't think that's true, check out 1 Kings, probably chapter 17 to 19, and you find that he was hungry, that he was fearful, that he went running from Queen Jezebel, scared to death, that he was so depressed in 1 Kings 19 that he wanted to die. What God is saying and what James is saying is, Elisha was like us in our humanity and our weaknesses. Friends, we, we have this seeming need to have heroes to worship, and we sometimes choose the wrong ones. And even though Elijah was a godly man, I want you to know he was very human, very much like you. God chooses to use garden-variety people like fishermen and tax collectors and tent makers And let's not look to them and say, well, it's just that they're so much better than us. James's point is, no, they're not. They're just like you. They're just like me. That means there's hope for us in our prayer life. And it tells us that Elisha prayed for three and a half years that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, there was a drought in an agriculturally driven economy. No rain, three and a half years. Think about that. And then he prays again, and it does rain. You say, what's that all about? Why would you pray for it not to rain? Well, Israel was worshiping the false god whose name was Baal. And Baal was believed to be the god who sent the rains and thundering and lightning. Remember that, lightning. Baal was the god of rain, the god who caused the crops to grow. So Elisha prays, God, you show that Baal is no God, no rain, three and a half years. Well, everybody is worshiping Baal. And Ahab, the king, is trying to find Elijah all over the place, can't find him. And finally, Elisha encounters Ahab after three and a half years, and he said, we're going to have a contest of the gods. You've heard of the battle of the bands? This was a battle of the gods. Bring all the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. Build an altar put the wood on it, the sacrifice. And and prophets of Baal, you get all morning to call out to Baal to strike by lightning and ignite that. And all day long, all morning long, they're dancing around there, they're doing their chants. Some of them are cutting themselves. Some of them are throwing them on the sacrifice. In other words, saying, Baal, hit by lightning even if it means consuming me. They were more committed than some Christians. I got to tell you that. They were all in the Baal worship. Meanwhile, Elisha's having a little sarcasm with them and saying, well, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's using the restroom. Maybe he's taking a nap. Baal doesn't answer. And finally, Elisha builds his altar, puts the wood on there, the sacrifice, digs a trench around there, and he tells them to go and get water from the Mediterranean, bring it up and drench the wood, drench the sacrifice, drench the stones, fill the trench with water, And then he calls out to God in a single prayer, and God answers by lightning and consumes it all, showing that he alone is God. He has all of the prophets of Baal killed. Then he goes and he waits on Mount Carmel, and he sees a cloud coming the size of a fist. 
And God sends the rain, and he says to King Ahab, you better get in your chariot and ride because the rains are coming. A common, ordinary guy like Elijah prayed because he was righteous, and God answered. Are you willing to pray a God-sized prayer? Are there people around you and you say, God could never save them? What right do you have to say that? They probably said that about Saul of Tarsus. Or, or somebody who's wandering from God and you're, you're, are you willing to pray that God can restore them? Are you willing to pray a God-sized prayer or are you just praying safe prayers? God doesn't need you to pray safe prayers. He needs you to pray prayers believing that God's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. That was the way Elijah prayed, and that is the way God answered. Friends, I want you to know, God can do more than you think if you're willing to pray, believing. And if you're willing to pray, a righteous life. Psalm 66, 18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I believe God answers every prayer that he hears. Now, sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. Sometimes he says I thought you'd never ask. God answers every prayer that he hears. But God, God in the Bible says he doesn't hear every prayer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In other words, if I have unconfessed sin in my life, I'm not on praying ground. But if I do come and confess my sin and I'm living before him a righteous life, I come to God and I can pray like Elijah and God can do great things. God wants to do amazing things through your life, in your neighborhood, in your school. God wants to do amazing things where you work, and he can. God wants to use you as a catalyst for spiritual awakening and a dry culture, and he's going to do that through prayer your answer to prayer. I want you to notice the second part of this, beginning at verse, um, verse 19. He talks about becoming a catalyst through restoration. He's clearly talking to believers because he says, my brothers, if anyone among you, that is somebody who's a part of the church, wanders from the truth and somebody brings him back, he, he restores them. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Become a catalyst to restoration. Kind of builds on what he had said back in verses 15 and 16, where he said that um, if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's saying that we need to be a restoring community. In other words, the church is not to be cold storage for frozen saints. The church is to be a restoring community. The church is to be a gathering of people that when somebody who was a professing believer walks away from God, we lovingly go after them, not looking down our nose in judgment, but reaching out our hand in, in ministry. Paul in Galatians 6.1 said, um, if anyone is overtaken in a sin, you that are spiritual or spiritual mature, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
I, I pray that God will make Chapel Point that kind of a restoring community. That, friends, if you walk away from God, there's going to be people that know you well enough that they're, they're coming after you in love. They're coming after you in grace. They're coming after you in humility and meekness, but they want to restore you. Because, friend, your Christian life may be personal, but it's not private. We, we live in relationship with one another. That's what the Christian life is all about. Notice what he says here, that the need for this restoring catalyst, believers who wander from the truth, they go astray from the gospel, in other words. It's a word, um, plano, that's used for planets in their circuits, wandering away from the gospel, wandering away from the truth. He talks about people who fall into sin. Someone uh, falls into sin, brings back a sinner, those who are not, not adjusting their life to God at all, and those who in their lifestyle are, are in error. So it may be a doctrinal thing, it may be a heart thing, it may be a practical thing in their life, but they're walking away from God. In the 1700s, there was a man that wrote a, a hymn, Robert Robinson. And I don't know how many times I have prayed this, this verse of this one hymn. I, I'm not going to sing it for you, don't worry. People will be getting up and leaving. Listen to the words, though. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Friends, there's not one of us that couldn't wander away but God wants us to be a restoring community that restores one another, that cares enough to be engaged with one another's lives. That's why we have deacons and why we have elders, why we have small groups, so we can be engaged in one another's lives, not at an arm's length. And look at the ministry of Restoration Catalyst, turning people away from sin, turning them away, turning them back. It talks about bringing them back, verse 19, and, and bringing back a sinner from his wandering. It's the idea of, of turning them around, making that U-turn in their life and restoring them. Friends, you may know somebody right now that needs to be restored, someone that needs to be brought back. And look at the results of this. Saving a soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. Uh, saving a soul from death because whatever sin touches, it kills. Sin is deadly. Do you understand that? God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. Ezekiel said that the soul that sinneth, it will die. Paul said the wages of sin is death. Whatever sin touches, it kills. And, and it may refer to actual physical death that happened to some believers who wandered from God. It, it may refer to the living in a spiritual graveyard rather than the abundance of God's grace, but but when you restore somebody, you bring them back into the life in Christ. You bring them back in restoration. It's been my joy to see God do that again and again in people's lives. What a joy it is to see someone in the deadness of sin now living in the life of Christ, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It's real, my friends. It's real. And then covering a multitude of sins. He's quoting here from Proverbs 10, 12. It's not talking about covering the sins of the person that's doing the restoring. It's talking about bringing that person back to 
the freedom that they have now of being forgiven. You see, Jesus is a good shepherd who restores his sheep. Our Heavenly Father is a good father who runs and embraces the prodigal, shoes on the feet, robe on the back, ring in the finger, and let's throw a party. And the Holy Spirit is the divine comforter who, when someone is restored, brings them back into the the enjoyment of grace and the truth of the gospel to the place where they're now living in the power of God rather than the defeat and sin. And, And our triune God is a restoring God. Do you get that? Our triune God is a restoring God. He wants to restore people today. Being a catalyst of spiritual awakening in a dry culture means we're about winning people to Christ, but also restoring those that have wandered away. And James says that's what we're all about. That's what we're all about. I'll ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that God can use you as a catalyst for spiritual awakening in a dry culture? Do you believe God can use you in your neighborhood, at your school, in your office, where you work out, with those relatives and friends that don't yet know Christ, or with that person that's wandering away from Christ? Do you believe God can use you? My friend, I do. I do. Because if God can use an Elisha, and if he can use a Peter, who himself needed to be restored after he denied Jesus three times, and Jesus said, Satan has desired to have you, that he could sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are turned back, then you minister to others. My friends, God can do that through you and through me in a dry culture and broken lives and people that desperately need to know Christ. Matter of fact, I know some of you that I've talked to even this past week that you've been sharing your faith with other people, relatives, friends, that need Jesus. He can use you. If he can use Elisha, if he can use Peter, he can use you this week as a catalyst for spiritual awakening in a dry culture.